This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, last week, we talked about this incredible miracle of Jesus healing the paralytic, the paralyzed man whose friends ripped open the roof and lowered him down in front of Jesus. And with merely a word, Jesus heals this man, and he gets up, he walks away, healed and forgiven. Well, we don't have a healing miracle in our text this afternoon, but we have something that was just as shocking and just as stunning for the people who were following Jesus. The incredible fact that Jesus calls sinners, and Jesus eats with sinners. And our story begins with Jesus walking out of Capernaum, walking beside the lake. And surely it's significant that Jesus' ministry is not him staying comfortably at home, sitting on his rocking chair on his porch, waiting for seekers to come to him to get wisdom and advice from the guru. Jesus is not staying where it's safe and where it's comfortable. Jesus has come into the world to go and seek the lost. To go and seek the lost. He's on a mission. And since Jesus is on a mission, he does a lot of walking around. He's going to the highways and the hedges finding people who are going to hear and believe in God's wonderful good news of forgiveness and welcome in God's kingdom. And as Jesus is walking along the road, a large crowd comes to him and they follow him. The news of Jesus' miracles and his teachings and these strange things that are afoot in Galilee have spread widely. And there's a large crowd crowd, a mob following Jesus. And he's walking along the road with these people and his disciples. And as he's walking, he comes to a tax collector's booth. It's not just a tax collector. This guy is a toll collector. The Romans had all sorts of different taxes, all designed to squeeze the maximum they could out of their conquered subjects. And one of the things they did was having toll collectors, people who were collecting tariffs and excises and customs fees on all trade that would pass through the the roads and bridges of the Roman Empire. In fact, the joke back then was the reason the Romans built such fine bridges was so that they could put toll booths on them. The Romans loved collecting money from their conquered people. And as you were traveling, you would hit toll booth after toll booth after toll booth. And each one would take a percentage somewhere between 25 and 12% of your goods, your crops, your produce, whatever it was you were trading, and they would take it for themselves. 
Now, the Roman tax collection system was a little different than ours. They operated on a scheme called tax farming, which they took over from the Greeks. And the way tax farming worked was the Romans didn't want to be troubled with the large bureaucracy of an IRS or an inland revenue service. They didn't want to set up their own tax collection service. What they did was they would auction off the tax rights for the different territories within their empire. And a very wealthy senator or a cartel of business people would bid on the tax contracts. And they were called the publicani, which is where this term publican comes from in very old translations of the Bible. It's not the friendly guy who pours your beer at the pub. These are the wealthy, at the top, people who are making tons of money collecting taxes. Because, of course, they collected taxes for the Romans, but anything over and above what the Romans wanted was theirs. So if you bid on a tax contract for $200 million, you needed to make a profit. And so you were trying to collect $250 or $300 million, as much as you possibly could. And of course, honest tax collection agencies were quickly run out of business because they would be outbid by someone who saw a lot more potential in that tax-forming system than the honest guy could squeeze himself. So there were actually three different levels to the tax collection system. There were the, the massive wealthy tax barons at the very top. We don't encounter any of those guys in the, in the New Testament. They were in the big cities like Rome. Then underneath them was middle management. Middle management goes back thousands of years. And the middle manager is someone like Zacchaeus. He oversaw the tax collection system in Jericho. He was pretty wealthy. But then at the bottom are the local guys, the guys who have to do the dirty work, the guy who's got to sit in the booth and wait for the carts to come by so he can actually collect the taxes. And it's a bit of a pyramid scheme. All of them are scraping a bit off the top. And of course, who pays for it? The ordinary average person. This is how the tax collection system worked. And Capernaum was on the Via Maris, which ran from Damascus down to Caesarea. So it was a major trade route. Plus, it was at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. So, Jesus' disciples, the four fishermen, Peter and James and Andrew and John, were very used to going through this tax collection, this toll collecting, collecting booth and handing over a selection of their very best fish to the toll collectors there, a familiar face in Capernaum. And at this booth is sitting a man named Levi. And this is probably the same person as Matthew, probably a, a second name he goes by. And there's a bit of an irony here, of course, because Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the head of one of the 12 tribes, and the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. They were the ones who were set apart for the worship of God, the Jews of the Jews, the priests of God. And here this guy, who has the name of a priest, is doing the dirty work for Rome, doing the dirty work for Herod, the client king in Galilee. He's a collaborator. Because guess what? Every occupying power always needs helpful locals who see the potential for profit in the occupation. And even while their fellow countrymen are being oppressed, these are the kind of people who see an opportunity to make money. And of course, the Romans would much rather work through a collaborator because all the hatred and all the anger would be deflected from the Roman Empire down to the local. The local who knew the language, 
He knew how people worked. He knew the local system. He knew where people would try to hide their stuff. And Levi is the local guy, the local toll collector, and he's not terribly popular. Not only is he a collaborator with the Romans, but he's contributing to this system of grinding oppression. Here's how the economics of the Roman Empire worked. The very top, maybe 3% of people, were wealthy. Then there were an additional 7% who were comfortable. They were well off. Then there were about 60% of the population who were living at or just above subsistence level. They can feed their kids. They can buy new clothes once a year or so, but they're just barely making it. They're just a paycheck away from poverty. And then almost 30% of people in the Roman Empire are living below subsistence. They don't quite have enough food to get the nutrition they need. They don't quite have the clothes they need. They don't have the shelter they need. They're living below subsistence level. So here's 90% of people in the empire who are just a few meals away from starvation. Things are tight. Things are really tight. And here come these tax collectors, these toll collectors, taking the little bit that you've been saving up for your daughter, for your wife, for your family, and you are watching your hard-earned money that you have sweated over, that you've toiled for, being taken away from you. You can imagine how people felt about these toll collectors. See, we read these stories as though the tax collectors are the poor and the marginalized. No, they are not. They are the marginalizers. They are the reason there are so many poor people. They are the bloodsuckers sucking the life out of the ordinary, decent, righteous Jew living in the promised land. And they were squeezing as much illegitimate profit as possible. And so they were despised. They were hated. And here's what that meant. A toll collector was forbidden from attending the synagogue, could not worship with God's people. They were disqualified from being a witness in Jewish courts. Can't trust that guy. Not allowed. The tax collector disgraced his entire family and was a person of shame and brought shame around everyone he was in contact with. Money collected by a toll collector was considered tainted. It was dirty money. And it would not be accepted for alms. So think about it. If a tax collector pulled out his wallet to give some money to the little old lady by the underpass, she would reject it. She would throw it in the garbage. Did not want that cash. It was dirty and disgusting because a toll collector had put his grubby fingers on it. So you can imagine a toll collector would have great difficulty even going to the shop and buying food because no one wanted to take his money. They were rejected and on the outside for good reason. Not only that, there was a rabbinical ruling. The Jewish, the Jewish religious authority said it's permissible to lie to a tax collector. God's requirement for honesty does not apply to those guys. You can lie on your taxes. In fact, we encourage it, they said. Not the position of this church, by the way. This is back then. They said, you can lie to these guys all you want because they're basically thieves and murderers, disgusting people, and they do not need to be treated as your neighbors. They do not need to be extended the same decency 
and courtesy you would extend to anyone else. So the toll collectors are, in fact, the wicked. If you've read through the Psalms, you see the righteous people of God praying and agonizing with God, come and judge the wicked. These people are eating up the righteous like they eat bread. And we are longing and praying for God to send deliverance to rescue us from these evil people who are sucking the life out of us. And we are longing for God to send a deliverer, a Messiah, who is going to kick these guys in the teeth and make everything right again. And man, we would have been praying the same thing, not a sympathetic figure. And so here is Jesus walking along the road. And as he approaches this toll booth, his eye falls on Levi. He sees Levi. Did you know the look of Jesus is very significant? He's not just glancing at people. He looks and he sees and he beholds this man. This hard, shrewd man sitting there with his coins and his paper at his toll booth. And Jesus sees him. And he holds up his hand. And the crowd stops in front of this toll booth. And I can imagine Levi sitting there doing his paperwork. And he looks up. And there's this crowd of people staring at him. And in the center, at the front of the crowd, Jesus is staring at him, looking at Levi right in the eye, deep into his soul. And I can imagine Levi gulping nervously because he has heard many harsh words before, no doubt. And he's probably bracing himself for something else. What is Jesus about to do? Is he going to turn over the toll booth table? Is he going to pull out a whip and whip Levi out of there and give everyone their money back? Jesus opens his mouth and says something utterly stunning. Stunning to the crowds, stunning to his disciples, and very stunning to Levi. Jesus looks at him and he says, follow me. Follow me. That's all Jesus says. It's an invitation to become a student apprentice with Christ as the master. To come, follow Jesus. Nothing is defined. Nothing is laid out. Simply the invitation, the command to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. Now, Levi wasn't seeking Jesus. He hadn't filled out the application He hadn't filled out the form. He wasn't coming to Jesus, asking if he would be considered as one of his disciples. He's not looking for Jesus. But Jesus is looking for him. I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who pointed out that in the Gospels, everyone who comes to Jesus as a volunteer gets turned away. And everyone Jesus calls seems to be busy doing something else. Throwing their nets, rowing their boats, sitting at the toll booth. Levi has no plans to follow Jesus, not even in his mind. But Jesus has a plan for Levi. And he looks at him and he says, Levi, follow me. Now, this is not a move calculated to win popular support. If Jesus had a PR person, 
he would have been horrified. Because this is the very last guy you want on your team. Levi is going to taint everyone with his stinky reputation. And we would have been thinking, man, Jesus, if you want to get as many people as possible into your kingdom, please, please, not this guy. Or if you're going to call him, have a private conversation with him and let him follow you with a bag over his head or something. We do not want this guy publicly associated with the kingdom of God. But yet, Levi the sinner is the one that Jesus calls. See, Jesus does not care what the world thinks. And Jesus does not care what his own people think about who he calls. Jesus is going to call whoever he wants to call. In John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays for the 12, the ones that the Father had given him. Jesus is not seeking Levi out at random. His heavenly Father had already assigned Levi to Jesus as one of his 12 disciples. And somehow, Jesus perceives the will of his Father in his spirit, and he stops in front of this most unlikely disciple and says, you, follow me. Get in line behind me. You are going to be one of mine. Well, it's hard to say what went through Levi's mind in, their, in those few moments. But somehow, he finds himself getting up and following Jesus. We have no evidence he was considering becoming a follower of Jesus. If he knew of Jesus, I'm sure it was only at a distance. But the look and the words of Jesus are so compelling, it's almost as if he can't help getting up and following Jesus. Last week, we also had a man getting up at Jesus' command. The paralyzed man got up from his mat, and that was a miracle. And here is Levi getting up from his toll booth, and that is no less a miracle of Jesus' powerful grace. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, in the parallel account, Luke adds the fact that when Levi got up and followed Jesus, he left everything. He left his money, he left his account books, he left his booth, and he followed Jesus. What we need to realize is that Levi would have been such a despised person and so permanently tainted by his occupation he would have been completely unemployable from that point onwards. He left everything to follow Jesus. That's what trusting Jesus as his disciple means. And now, Levi's life, instead of being defined by greed and theft and manipulation, is now going to be defined by Jesus. Jesus just says, follow me. You'll find out along the way what following me looks like. It will be unfolded to you one step at a time as you follow me down these dusty roads. But Levi, I'm going to be the one who defines your life now. You are identifying yourself with me, and I have a plan with you. You have no idea what that is, but I am going to define it for you. Man, that is a great act of trust by Levi, is it not? And when Jesus calls us to follow him, He's not giving us the syllabus. 
He's not giving us the detailed list of requirements and everything that's going to be called of us as we walk with him through our lives. But even though we don't know where we're going, we do know who we're going with. We are going with Christ, the master, the one who is in total control of the universe, and the one who is out to save the world. Follow me, Jesus says. Now, sometime later, we don't know when, it could have been that afternoon, it could have been weeks or months later, Levi hosts a banquet. He hosts a feast at his house, and he invites Jesus, Jesus' disciples, and we're told, many tax collectors and sinners. See, Levi wasn't just a one-off guy, some weird idiosyncrasy of Jesus where his brain kind of went on the fritz. Jesus was calling many tax collectors and sinners to follow him. Petty criminals, extortioners, loan sharks, pickpockets, swindlers, gamblers, prostitutes, pimps. Basically, the who's who of the Capernaum underworld is hanging out with Jesus. Not the poor and the marginalized, the oppressors, the evil people. But yet, for some reason, they have decided to follow Jesus. Mark's quite clear. These were not just guests who were curious and interested. They were people who were following Jesus. Do you know what? Jesus attracts sinners. Jesus attracts lousy people. There's something about Jesus that makes people who know themselves to be kind of gross and kind of scummy, somehow there's something about Jesus, the Holy Son of God, that draws sinful people to himself. I'm sorry to say the church doesn't always feel like that. That's to our shame. But Jesus is the kind of person who always makes sinful people feel welcome. I am sure that this motley crew of sinners felt hope when they heard about Jesus laying hands on the leper and purifying him. And I'm sure this motley crew felt hope when they heard about the paralyzed man who had his sins forgiven. And I'm very sure they felt great hope when they'd heard the news that Matthew, one of their own guys, part of this underworld, had been summoned by Jesus to be on his team. And as they looked at Jesus, they knew they were bad people. But somehow, Jesus made them feel something hopeful about themselves, that maybe God wanted them after all. There's a marvelous story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel about King David. Well, he was anointed by God, but this was before he became the king. And he was running from Saul, and he's hiding in the cave of Adullam. And it says in 1 Samuel that all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented, they gathered around David, and he became their commander. The guys on David's team, these 400 men around him, were all the people who were in debt, all the people who were running from the law, all the people who had something they were trying to hide from. And those are the people that King David is building the base of his new kingdom around. And these are the kind of people that Jesus wants on his team. I remember in elementary school, we had sports. And I was always the scrawniest and the smallest kid in my class. And man, I hated it when they would line up and pick teams. 
Did anyone ever enjoy picking teams? There's like maybe 5% of people who really love that because you were chosen first. But a lot of us always felt like, man, I'm being picked last, and no one wants me on their team. Jesus is not going around picking the most likely people, the people who look like they're the spiritual, spiritually strong ones, the brilliant ones, the intelligent ones. Jesus is going for the people that no one else wants, the rejects and the losers and the scummy people. Those are the people that Jesus is picking first in his kingdom. Not only that, not only is Jesus calling them, he's sitting down and eating with them. In fact, the underlying Greek makes it clear that he wasn't actually sitting. They were reclining. So they were lying on these long couches with their heads towards the little table and their feet away from it. They were reclining and having a banquet together. Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners and petty criminals. And meals have always had massive cultural significance. You could, in fact, make the argument that human culture began with people eating a meal together. And who you eat with in the ancient world and in most of the world today, who you choose to eat with says a great deal about who you accept, who you identify with, who your people are. And so the fact that Jesus is reclining and relaxing and enjoying a banquet with this group of people, he's saying very loudly, I welcome these people. These are my friends. These are my family. I'm not ashamed of them. I'm not embarrassed by them. I am proud to be identified with these men and women. Now, the other disciples were there at least the four that Jesus had already called. And I imagine they felt distinctly uncomfortable in this situation. I went for dinner one time at a woman who, um, she had married a Salvadorian man. And I, I was sitting on the couch, this, I mean, who could be whiter than myself? I'm sitting on the couch between these two beefy Latino guys. They had like undershirts and big chains around their neck. And I, man, I, I tried to belong, but really, I felt... I felt uncomfortable and very out of place. And I imagine these fishermen, these godly, righteous, decent, ordinary Jews, felt a little nervous about Jesus walking through Levi's door and then seeing the kind of people that they're expected to eat a meal with. They have committed to follow Jesus. This is a very uncomfortable situation to be following Jesus into. But guess what? If you want to be part of Jesus' family, you are going to get some brothers and sisters who are very messy people. You are going to have brothers and sisters who don't have their act together, to say the least. You are going to have brothers and sisters who have massive, glaring problems, and their sin and their immaturity just shines out of them. And you are going to feel uncomfortable and out of place and wishing that you did not have to associate with these people. But guess what? Being a disciple of Jesus means that, like Jesus, we too must identify with. We too must welcome. We too must befriend. And we too must sit down and eat with sinful, 
scummy, dirty people, not that much different from ourselves. Now I'm sure the disciples saw the significance of what Jesus was doing. And no doubt the tax collectors and sinners deeply felt the significance of what Jesus was doing. No rabbi, no religious teacher had ever talked to them, much less sat down and eaten with them. But that's what Jesus is doing. But they're not the only ones who see the significance of Jesus eating with sinners. The religious authorities note it as well. The scribe, the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees. Now, I think this is the first time that we encounter this term Pharisees in the Gospel of Mark. And it literally means those who are separate. They were a group, a sect within Judaism in the first century. And their deal was this. The Sadducees and the priests and the whole temple system is basically corrupt. Because the Romans control all that stuff. The priests are fat and wealthy and they're oppressing the people and they're collaborating with Rome. The temple is deeply suspect. I mean, we go there once a year because God says so, but we have to kind of hold our nose. There's something wrong with the temple. So here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to recreate the purity of the temple and the purity of the priesthood in our own lives. Each of our little houses is going to be a temple. And we are going to adopt the purity laws for the priests in the Old Testament. So that at least if the, if the leadership in the nation is corrupt, we can be the righteous few, the pious ones who are holding on to the Bible and holding on to God's tradition. And we can be the temple of God that he returns to when he comes. Now, that's an attractive vision. And it was very attractive for the ordinary poor, working-class Israelite. The historian Josephus says, the Pharisees had the ear of the people. The Pharisees were grassroots. They were popular. They were attractive. But they're the kind of people who approach holiness from the preventative side. And a major part of their deal was dietary laws. What you put in your mouth and who you eat with was massively important to the Pharisees because that's how you keep yourself pure and separated from sinners. That's how we're going to enact the temple in our own lives. We righteous must have a wall of separation and keeping the sinners as far away from us as we can. And so the Pharisees, they complain to the disciples Now, Mark, this is the second of five stories of opposition. The first one, last week, the paralyzed man. Do you remember the Pharisees? They were thinking, they were thinking within themselves, what's he doing forgiving sinners? He's blaspheming. So in the first story, they're thinking to themselves. Now it's advanced. They're speaking, not directly to Jesus yet, but they're taking his disciples aside and saying, what on earth is going on here? If this guy is from God, he is... He's got the wrong people at his table. There's some major mistake happening here. And they may well have found a sympathetic ear with the disciples. Because I'm sure Peter and Andrew and James and John were pretty confused and pretty weirded out by the people that Jesus was choosing to eat with. The people that Jesus was making them eat with. Psalm 1 in the Bible, the first psalm, talks about the righteous person 
is not the kind of person who walks in the way of sinners. He's not sitting in the seat of the wicked. He's not standing with the, with the unrighteous. The righteous person is the one who keeps himself holy and separate from sinners. So what on earth is Jesus, who seems to be from God because he's doing all these miracles, why on earth is Jesus hanging out with the wrong people? Something is deeply wrong here. This is not what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. And in verse 17, Jesus responds to the Pharisees. He overhears their muttering and complaining, and he responds. And he quotes to them a proverb that would have been very common to any Jew of that time. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The point is, doctors are there to heal sick people. And if you're a doctor and you only want healthy people, you're not really doing your job, are you? You're not really being a doctor. And so Jesus did not come for the well, for the healthy, for the strong. He came for the sick. He came for the sick. See, Jesus is not afraid of being contaminated by sin. He's not afraid of getting his hands dirty. In fact, it's Jesus' contagious holiness that transforms sinful people. His contagious holiness that transforms sinful people. The light of Jesus is so strong that the darkness cannot overcome it. The light of Jesus overcomes and overwhelms the darkness so that when sinners look into the face of Jesus, they find themselves being transformed by his holiness into new people. See, Jesus has come to heal the sick. By the way, he's not come to affirm sickness. He's not saying to the sinners and tax collectors, keep on collecting those taxes, keep on sinning, fine with me. He's calling them to follow him. You are sick, you need a doctor, and I am the only one who can heal you, Jesus says. Guess what? Sinful people cannot heal themselves. You can make up all sorts of quack medicine and take all sorts of horse pills. There's nothing you can do to make yourself better. My question this afternoon is this. Do we trust that contact with Jesus is all people need to be changed? Do we trust that contact with Jesus is all people need to be changed? Or are we so foolish to think that we need to protect Jesus from sinful people, lest he be contaminated? This is the reason Jesus came. We come to him with our sinful sickness. He's not shocked and confused and wondering how he's going to deal with this bizarre case. This is exactly the reason Jesus came. And how foolish of us, how silly of us to think, ah, I feel embarrassed to go to Jesus. I feel embarrassed to go to the doctor because I'm sick. So I'm going to try to get myself well so that I can go to the doctor and say, this was wrong with me, but it's okay. I took care of it. What a foolish thing to do. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. And some of us are hesitant to take the cup and the bread because we think, I'm not a good enough person for this. I need to get myself in shape before I come to Jesus, before I receive his grace. 
guess what? The only thing Jesus asks is that we feel our need of him. He just invites us, come to me with your sin. Come to me with your sickness. You don't have to get yourself better. You don't have to try to fix yourself. Come to me and I will give you life. He hasn't come to call the righteous. He came for sinners. That's why we confess our sin together. Every week, we are acknowledging, I am a sinner. I'm not a righteous person. I am a sinner. And yet again this week, I have fallen short in so many ways in loving God and my neighbor. But guess what? My sin need be no barrier to me lifting my hands and rejoicing and singing praise to God. Jesus has come to redeem the irredeemable, to save the unsalvageable. Jesus came for the last, the least, and the lost. These are the ones that Christ has come for. Guess what? Sinners don't need to earn God's acceptance. There's nothing we can do to make God accept us, but he offers it to us in Jesus as a free gift. That's why, in the Gospels, Jesus is never in the business of classifying and ranking people the way that we do, according to age or gender or class or ethnicity or nationality. Jesus does none of that. We all come the same way as sinners in the lowest possible place to be welcomed by God. He came for sinners, not for righteous And it's pretty clear that when Jesus says, I haven't come to call the righteous, he's being kind of ironic. Because by the end of Mark's gospel, we realize there are no righteous people. It's an empty set. There is no one, not one who is righteous, except for Jesus himself. The only people who are excluded from Jesus' grace are the ones who exclude themselves by imagining, by pretending that they don't need Jesus. All he asks you to do is hold out your hand and receive the gift of forgiveness of sins and welcome into God's family, and he will receive you. See, there's only two categories of people. Not the sinners and the righteous, but those who admit their sin and those who deny their sin. So, don't let your sin stop you from following Jesus. He is inviting everyone here today Come, follow me. Come, eat with me. You are welcome into my family. And you might think, I don't have my act together. Doesn't matter. I'm not a righteous person. Doesn't matter. I'm not very religious. Doesn't matter. I have a lot of sin. I got a lot of guilt. I got a lot of shame. Doesn't matter. Jesus welcomes you. And he'll take your sin, and he'll take your shame, and he'll take your sickness, And he will deal with it because you can't deal with it. And if you wait until you're better, you are going to wait forever. Now, today, this afternoon, Jesus invites you to come. And for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, we need to remind ourselves of who we really are. Because once you're a disciple for a while, you can start deceiving yourself into thinking, I am... I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I've got, I, my act is together. I've 
been married for 11 years. I have a couple kids. I'm the interim pastor of a church. Things are going really well. And that's probably why God wanted me on his team, because he really needed me. We are deluding ourselves if we think that. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Remember who you were when you were called. Not many righteous, not many wise, not many wealthy, not many exalted according to the standards of this world, but we were weak and we were sinful and we were lowly. Why does God call those kind of people, Paul says? So that there may be no boasting, no bragging in the kingdom of God about who's better and who's worse, who's more righteous and who's more sinful. God came to call the sinful. And then Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, right after those verses, in Jesus we have wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's all found in Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and that's where we gather as God's church to worship him. There's a church somewhere in the U.S., and they call themselves the scum of the earth church. Isn't that great? The scum of the earth church. That's who we are, according to Paul. You know when you have to clean out the, sh- the, the shower and you like pull out all this gunk and hair and stuff? That's kind of who Christians are in the world's eyes and perhaps in our own eyes. The scum of the earth. And those are the people that Jesus has called to assemble a kingdom together. We're all kind of scummy. Some of us a bit more, but we're all kind of scummy in different ways. And we all have dirty and dark secrets that God knows about. But we are still welcome. And so we want this to be a kind of church where we are welcoming one another as Jesus has welcomed us. And God's big, messy, dirty, grubby family, but a family nevertheless. The church is meant to be a hospital for sinners. We're all sinners, we're all sick, and Jesus is moving down the aisles, past the beds, healing, changing, and transforming. So, we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper, a meal for sinners. This is not the reward for saints, for those who have reached a certain level of spiritual maturity, those who have checked a certain number of boxes for God. This is for the needy, for the hungry, for those who are weak and who feel their need of God. So let's pray before we partake. With joy, we praise you, gracious God, for you've created heaven and earth. You've made us in your image, and you have kept covenant with us even when we fell into sin. And we give you thanks for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, God, that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took upon himself the form of a servant, and he came and walked this world. He came to seek the lost, and he came to call sinners, and he came to eat with sinners. And therefore, as sinners called to be saints, named as your children, accepted into your family, we join our voices with all the saints and angels and the whole creation to proclaim the glory of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, before Jesus suffered and died, he gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again. 
This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.